you know, I just think there's some really good things that are going to happen this year for our space, and I'm excited about it. For me, this is a nonpartisan issue. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat. It makes economic sense. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick Podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangen, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm excited to interview Chris Diaz. He's the co-CEO of Seminal Financial Services. They are a leading finance provider to small-scale 1 megawatt to 40 megawatt renewable energy facilities, and they've directly funded over $2 billion, totaling more than 1 gigawatt of renewable energy nationwide. In addition to his role as co-CEO, Chris oversees the business development team, as well as the capital and investor relations. He is also a corporate shareholder. More than a source of capital, Seminole provides its development partners with exceptional service and understanding required to execute even the most complex transactions. Since joining the company in 2009, Chris has been responsible for the identification, evaluation, and negotiation of renewable financing transactions, focusing on solar and wind projects between 2 to $40 million in need of construction, interim financing, permanent debt financing, and tax equity. Chris speaks about a lot of interest interesting topics on the podcast. He talks about potential new federal incentives for solar, what makes a project bankable, meaning that you could obtain financing for it, a tax equity, which is a major part of the capital stack for a solar project. He talks about this past year in 2020 and then the outlook for 2021. And he talks about solar trends, not just in financing. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Solar Maverick podcast and thank you for listening. Hi, this is Benoa, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm excited to have Chris Diaz. He's the Principal Co-Chief Executive Officer at Seminole Financial Services. Chris, I'm excited to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, definitely. I know we've been trying to schedule this for a while, and I'm excited because you're the expert in solar and renewable energy financing. So it's always great to get your perspective. And I've always been impressed listening to you speak at conferences talking about renewable energy financing. So I appreciate the time that you made today. Well, thank you. It's very kind of you to say. Anytime. So in the beginning, we talked about Seminole Financial Services, but I think it would be great if you could go into more detail about Seminole Financial Services and what the company does. They're happy to. So Seminole was founded in 2009. We're a boutique lender, but we're also SEC registered investment advisor. And we advise and manage for a group of pension funds. And the relationship with these pension funds goes back to the 70s. And, you know, in 09, we were looking at what the environment was, what was happening. You know, there were some good things happening with renewable energy. And we saw this opportunity to start doing construction financing for smaller deals. And we took a chance. We did a couple financings. We had the money available. So it all worked out great. That just led from one thing to the other. And now since 2009, so far, we financed over $2 billion over a gigawatt. So we're really proud of that accomplishment. We have a great team at Seminole and they're they're much wiser than I am. They do all the hard work. I'm just kind of out in front of everybody. People see me a lot, but the guys back in the office really do a lot. It's a great team. Yeah, definitely. And I've, you know, met a lot of the team at Seminole and it's pretty impressive. And that's impressive too, Chris. Like to do, I guess you started at Seminole in 2009 and 11 years to do one gigawatt. 
is really impressive. I think a very short period of time and considering how early things are in the renewable energy sector. Sure, it's a lot of bunts and singles. We focused on the really, really small stuff in the beginning doing, I think at that point when it was $8 a watt for an installation, <laughs> yeah. we were doing like uh, 500 kW and, you know, megawatt, two megawatts, and then that all kind of started growing. Now we kind of do one meg up to about 40 megs on the debt side. Sure. And can you talk about too, like, I mean, you make a great point about the cost of solar. And could you imagine how quickly that it's gone down within a decade and how affordable systems are compared to like some of the first projects you financed? It's incredible. It really is, you know, and that's attributed a lot of advances in the technology and people get more efficient at how they do things. You know, SIA puts out this nice graph and how the solar has come down and you look at that, you know, just decline, decline, decline. And, you know, it's amazing that people are building utility scale stuff for 80 cents a watt. I mean, it's just incredible. And, you know, I think there's more to come with the advances, you know, the bifacial panels are helping out, bumping up the production. And I think it'll just continue. I don't know that we'll get the magnitude of the gains that we've gotten, but I think, you know, we're getting more and more efficient, which is great for the industry. It shows that it's a maturing and thriving environment. Definitely. And I think another interesting point you said too was some of the first transactions was like 500 kilowatts. And I'm sure those first transactions seem like very large compared to the size of transactions that you're doing today, which are a lot bigger. Especially when you don't really know what you're doing way back when, you know. Yes. <laughs> I remember going to my first conference, what's a PPA? What, what are they talking about? You know, just jotting down notes and trying to find glossaries and things. And uh, we've come a long way from what we first knew to where we are now. But we just, you know, we invested in these pension funds and we really manage that money. It's precious capital for us and we don't want to lose a penny. And that's another thing we're proud of. We haven't lost one penny in capital since we started investing. So that's a great track record and one that we're really proud of. But we took a lot of common sense approach. We took what we knew from real estate and how do we apply this to renewables from an underwriting standpoint. And it translated and, you know, we've had some good success. That's great to hear. And that's amazing Like that you haven't lost any capital. And that's huge, obviously, for these pension funds. And it's interesting that you talk about your background in real estate, because there's so many people with the real estate background who bring the principles that they've learned into the solar sector, which seems like very transferable sort of skill set. And the tax, you know, I did a lot of low-income housing tax credit syndication prior to getting into renewables. And just having that knowledge of the credit... <laughs> was a huge help in getting off the scale because, you know, the credits can be tricky. And uh, some people are just like, especially people that come from Europe and start developing here. They're like, what's this tax credit? How does this all work? Why can't everybody use it? You know, so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And that seems like a huge opportunity as well, right? Because you talked about construction, financing, the tax credits, you provide project debt as well for projects and then tax equity. Is that correct? That's correct. So we'll do construction financing. We do mini perm financing. We do also do USDA REAP loans. And then right. we do some developer loans. That's a little more of a precious capital, let's say. So that we're a little more selective where we'll do the developer loans for developers that we've already worked with. You know, it's kind of a value add to them to help them with their business needs. And then we do tax credit syndication on behalf of investors that range from Fortune 100 to small regional banks. That's a scarce resource, the... <laughs> 
tax equity investors. And you know what ends up happening is we stay in contact with the investors all the time. And then they'll, okay, we know what our tax liability is. Okay, we want to find this, a deal this size or in this location or this type of deal, this type of developer. And then at any given time, I think I have a view on at least 800 megawatts worth of deals that need tax equity right now as they sit today. So yeah, there's a lot of opportunity there. And it's an important part of the capital stack. Had a few interesting debates on panels more so years ago, but you know, people were like, oh, just let the tax credit go. It's not efficient at this, it's expensive, it's that. But at the end of the day, my question back to them is okay, fine. If we let it go, what makes up 35% of the capital stack? Where's that coming from? Because if it's coming from equity, one, not every business has that much equity laying around, they can put that capital. And if it's coming from an equity investor, then you're paying a way more of a premium for that capital than if you had, you know, just syndicated the tax credits. And it is what it is, right? It's what we have. It's a tool that's there. We all have to work with it. You know, we have we constantly have deals on our pipeline that we're ready to do the debt, but we need to lock down the tax equity. And that's, you know, what is it going to be an $18 billion market? And there's maybe like 12 billion worth of investors. And really it shakes down to I think there's 35 or 40 investors that are consistently in the market for the tax equity. So you know, we'll have to see what happens with the upcoming legislation. You know, I'm definitely not advocating for uh, increasing uh, corporate tax rates or whatnot. But if they raise it from 21 to 25 or 21 to 28, then that could bring more investors in. So that could open some things up. You know, we'll just have to see. And then they're also talking about this direct pay. They're trying to get that provision in. They're also trying to get an extension of the I think Charlie Chris just uh, yes. put something forth that was a five-year extension at 30%, which would be great if we got that. And then I think Biden put together kind of a tech neutral or just a tax credit for all energy sources that are carbon neutral. And that would look like an ITC and a PTC. So at least there's things that are happening. Now, what does or doesn't get done, you know, we don't know yet, but it's encouraging that there's conversations going on and people are real excited about trying to make something happen. Yeah, that's huge. And it helps from a planning purpose as well. Yeah. Having a long- line of sight on what's going on is very important. Trust me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as you know, the development cycle takes so long. And these, right. you know, the ITC and where it's going to be just impacts the economics and yeah. even the step down to lower value. So it'll be interesting to see. That's exciting to hear from your perspective. Like the direct pay is essentially, is that a cash grant essentially, like the RERA grant kind of structure, or is that different from? Well, so the way right, the Treasury grant, 1603 grant, went through Treasury. Sure. And this program, they're trying to run it through the IRS. And it would be basically you would file your taxes for the single purpose entity that holds the facility or what have you. There's some nuances to it that are still, I know they're still debating a lot of it, but. You know, from a lender's perspective, the things that would be concerning to me are one, they're talking about 85% versus 100%. Okay. So, why the government would discount a program that's an incentive program already, yeah. you know, it is what it is. But I think sure. that realistically, that hurts the people you're trying to help, right? 
Because if you're looking at a tax credit deal where you know it's a megawatt, let's say, or two megawatt deal, there's some fixed costs between attorney's fees, counting fees, and some things that get absorbed. But it's also the same cost for a 100 megawatt deal from those kind of yes. costs. So the 100 megawatt deal, maybe that 85% you know, direct pay doesn't affect it as much, right? Because their cost of capital is lower and it's spread out over a bigger deal. The smaller guy, you know, why should he be penalized if you got a 500 kW deal or a one megawatt deal? You know, why not give you 100% of that incentive? The other thing that's a little problematic is how you file for it, right? Because if, yes. you, if I'm a lender, right, I want to know what my sources of repayment are. Sure. Before I lend, not after, right? After, definitely. So with this direct pay, if I'm like, before I lend off the grant, so I would take a conservative basis number and go dollar for dollar and assume that we were in a pretty close range and any like ragged edge either way, like would be made up through the whatever developer fee was deferred or not deferred. And we were usually pretty close. We didn't have some that just totally, whoa, blew us away how far off they were. And I liked that program. It was relatively consistent, but there were some things that were going on that just for whatever the reason now, the political climate isn't as favorable towards it. Yes. So this direct pay, you know, that's one thing they're trying to get is the 100% versus 85%. And then the ability to file for that right away. If you place your project in service in June, let's say, you can't file your taxes right now anyway till January, February of the next year. Because yeah. the IRS guidelines have to come out, the forms and the documents have to all come out. So you can't file for it then. So now you're going to have six months of production, seven, eight, nine, who knows how long. So then as a lender, I got to go back and kind of estimate, okay, well, I think you're going to get this much back, but then you're going to produce this much. So if I thought it was going to be X, it might be Y or, you know, so that just adds a lot of confusion and could be problematic for lenders to get their arms around it. And I, you know, when this first was being discussed and and bannered around, I just reached out to like 20 other lenders in the space, which is almost up until maybe six months ago, that was a lot of people. That was almost (laughs) the whole market. Now everybody and their mother's coming into the space. But everybody said, big lenders, small lenders all said the same thing that, you know, that's going to be something we're going to have to figure out how we get our arms around that and how we lend against that. And I know that they're working through the, you know, all the rules and stuff of it right now. And they know that that's important to have something you could file right away. So hopefully they'll get that situated. Sure. It'll be interesting to see what happens like direct pay or obviously the ITC and the other credit that you're talking about. Obviously the industry, you know, would prefer something that they're already comfortable with, I would think. Totally agree. Totally with agree. ITC for five years at 30%, I think most people would say that would be a great route to go. And it's consistent with what we know. So it's a lot easier to plan for that. Absolutely. It was interesting to hear your perspective on like tax equity. Can you talk about how, Chris, in 2020, with COVID and the pandemic, with tax equity investors not sure what their taxable income would be, how did that like affect the tax equity market? And what do you see, you know, for 2020 with the ITC obviously extended at 26% from the stimulus package in December? It would be great to get your perspective on that. As you said, it's such an important part of the capital stack that I think is the hardest piece of the capital stack to get. And there's so many different requirements to be able to get it that it's like every developer or investor is, you know, trying to get that. So, and there's some investors out there who are still trying to get their tax equity commitments and not able to move forward. So by far the hardest part of the capital stack by far. And, you know, looking back last year, there were some historically strong, let's call them companies that invested in the investment tax credit that were very profitable last year. And those guys still continue to invest in a big way. 
right? People were like, oh, things are still happening. And yes, they were. I think the banks were a little nervous at the beginning of the year, but then the PPP loans were a source of revenue for the banks. Yeah. You know, so the banks are worried on one side, hey, we, we lend a lot to real estate, you know, apartment complexes or to malls or this or that. So they're nervous about how that side of their portfolio is going to get affected. Then on the other side, you're doing a lot of loans over here. So you're generating fees. So some of the banks kind of stayed in there and did some tax credit investing. There's a couple of pretty good size investors that we know about that are in the market that continue to do the investing. But, you know, it's always those ones that kind of come in or the newer ones that you need to make up the gap. You know, let's just say as an example that there's consistently 8 million, 10 million of investors that are there that are always going to be there. But if you have 15 to $18 billion worth of need, you got to pull in investors from here and there to try to make up all those gaps to get all these deals done. And that's where I think it was the most challenging year for that. For people that were newer to it, were like, well, I don't know if I want to get into it or I had done it once or twice and said, well, let's see how it looks. That's been difficult, but things are still getting done. So that's positive. And you know, some developers will take the approach that they'll go ahead and get started on their deal without the tax equity in the hope that as they get further down the road with their deals, they'll be able to find a tax equity investor. Yeah. Now, it is a little risky. But like from a lender's perspective, what I'll do in that situation is I'll go into my credit committee and get the loan amount approved as if they have the tax equity investors. So I'm going to, you know, just for the approval process, get it approved as if there's perm debt and tax equity coming in to take out my construction. And then I'll have the developer put their own equity in because their equity is the first money in the deal to cover the equity requirement for the deal because we don't do 100% financing, plus cover what we think the equity for the tax credits are going to be. And then they'll go out and try to find the tax equity investor. So once they find the tax equity investor, then we would basically rebate that money that they put in as equity for the tax equity and fund up the construction loan to the original amount that we were planning on doing. So it allows them to get started. I mean, there's more risk on the developer, but you know, if they feel very confident that they could find the investor, you know, that's not too bad of a way to go. And the thing that I have learned about the tax credit investors is August, September, October, I get phone calls from investors. Hey, what do you have? <laughs> yeah. You got a deal you can close this year and I get the credits <laughs> this year. And I, come on, you know, and you know, we are able to find them that late in the year because there are guys that just get started and take the risk themselves. So, you know, it can work out, but it could also be a little difficult if you're not able to find the investor in time. Oh, I'm sure that makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate you explaining. I know one of the things with tax equity, as you mentioned, is that there's a limit to the amount of available tax equity out there and the amount of projects. So always people are concerned whether there's enough tax equity for the project need, obviously good financeable projects. Can you talk about like that a little bit? I know like developers and investors have that concern. Also about the structuring of the transaction. I think now people are pretty comfortable with how the transactions are structured. And I don't know, can you talk about like what structure is like most popular that you're seeing in the industry now or that you guys prefer? There's three structures, right? You have the partnership flip, you have the inverted lease structure, and then you have the sale leaseback structure. Those are the three main structures. We don't do the sale leaseback. That seems to be a favorite structure of some, you know, let's call them regional banks or, you know, the mid-structure. Then, you know, you have the partnership flip and the inverted lease. From an investor's perspective, I think the developer prefers the inverted lease because of the step-up in basis. So we're comfortable with both. We've closed funds, 
using a partnership flip and we've closed funds using the inverted lease as well. As I say, it's kind of dealer's choice. Whatever the investor wants, that's what we're going to give them. You know, hopefully the developer's comfortable with the strategy that we're trying to work within. That's like a very clear way of explaining some very complicated structure. <laughs> <laughs> I've sat in the audience way too many times and just sit there and wow, man, this stuff is complicated. <laughs> and it is. In no way am I trying to say that the tax credit stuff is not complicated. But I just try to really look at a simplistic way of just kind of looking at stuff and what makes the most sense when you're trying to think through it. That's great that you do it that way. I was curious on the inverted lease, you talked about how the developers prefer the higher basis with the inverted. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So with the inverted lease, right, it's basically you're able to utilize an appraisal to step up the basis. So you get a higher basis number. And the other thing that the developers like about it is that you're able to take... So on a partnership flip, the investor gets basically 99% of the tax credits, 99% of the losses and depreciation. On an inverted lease, you slide a master tenant in there. And so that allows you to pass through 100% of the tax credits to the investor, but then you can bifurcate or separate out the losses and depreciation. So that you can split those 49% to the investor, 51% to the developer. So if the developer has the ability to utilize the losses and depreciation, which a lot of them do, they like that structure because you got a little step up in basis and you're getting the losses and depreciation where on the other structure, you really weren't getting that. You know, and then on the back end, you know, on a partnership flip, it just goes from 99.1 to 95.5. So now the developer owns 95%, the investor's 5%, and you get them out for that after year five. And all the stuff that we do, we do a yield-based flip, not a time-based flip. If we promise the investor you're going to get X, then we want to deliver that. We hope to deliver it in the time frame because they don't really want to stay in there much longer than the investment goes. But sometimes, you know, things happen and you make it up by staying in a little longer. On the inverted lease, you could see that kind of this flip-like mechanism that occurs after the compliance period. That back end could look like, you know, 93.7 or 90.10 or something. Sure. You know, it could be a little different, not just a straight 95.5 like you would typically see with the partnership flip. That's really interesting. I really appreciate that. I didn't know that about the inverted lease, about the step up in basis and being able to, you know, get some depreciation and other tax benefits for the developer to base. That's where it gets really complicated. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) That's for sure. Yeah, you said it high level enough that you know we could understand it. So that's really helpful. It's interesting because one of Seminole's tenants is about being a relationship business. And I feel like solar is like three degrees separation from Kevin Bacon. <laughs> Can you talk about the importance of relationships? And you started at Seminole and it's amazing, you know, how many companies that you've worked with and developers and investors. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. I mean, for us, relationships are, you know, the premise of what we do. We have great relationships with our investors. They trust that we're good stewards of their money. And I tell them, no one's going to watch your money like we watch your money. We don't want to lose one penny of anybody's money. So it's really important to us. And, you know, people that invest with us trust that we're going to do the right thing. Developers that work with us, they come to work with us because there's certainty of execution. They know that we have the capital, that we will deploy the capital. We tell them we're going to do something, we do it. And we have great relationships with the developers that we've worked with. And for us, it's important to know who you're working with. 
So we'll go most of the time before we even lend someone money, we're going to go fly out, see them in their office. I mean, pre-COVID, but you know, we still try to go and see people, see their sites, see what they're doing. Gives us a good sense for what their needs are, right? You know, we came up with this construction loan program because it was a need. No one on a national basis was financing these smaller construction loans back in 09 when we started doing it. There were some regional players, but nobody was doing it on a national basis. Mm -hmm. And then we saw that niche and we came in and we learned about it, got real good at it. Our underwriting teams became very experienced at it so we could execute easily. Then, you know, 2010, 2011, the European banks kind of retreated back to Europe and they were primarily the ones doing a lot of the long-term debt. So we, hey, you know, let's figure this out. How are we going to do a mini firm? Our clients need it. Then we had some clients that needed capital to help them, you know, get more deals or keep the, you know, cash flow working for them while they're trying to develop these deals through permitting, engineering, and all that stuff. So that's how the developer loan program came about. Then the 1603 grant went away. We started doing tax credit syndication. You know, then we saw a need for long-term debt. You know, USDA, we got approved on their platform. And so it's just kind of really, we want to know what people need. And then we try to be there for them and be consistent. You know, I think people like the fact that they close one deal with us. They come back for the second and third deal. It's the same deal. It's the same documents. I'm not changing stuff. We're not doing things different. You know, life's too short to try to recreate the wheel every single time that you do a transaction with somebody. And, you know, I think just people appreciate it. And we're very transparent on, you know, what we do and how we do it with our investors and our developers. So it's, um, it's served us well. And we're really proud of what we've been able to do so far. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And there's so many great points that you made, Chris. And I was thinking like always the first deal is always the hardest to close. And then after you're able to close that, it seems like it's a lot more scalable when the same two parties are involved. Funny you say that because our first deal was really the hardest deal to ever do. We, <laughs> we did a win deal out in the state of Washington and it was with a nonprofit. It was uh, two different lenders two different tax credit investors. It was an opportunity zone. It was... Uh, um, new market tax credit. New market tax credit. That's right. And it was, as one of my partners <laughs> says, it was like a, a cast from the Ben-Hur movie. I mean, so many attorneys and CPAs. And it took a while to get it done, but we got it done. And we came, we were the last one into the party because that was the one piece they needed was a construction lender. And you know, we got our arms around it. It turned out to be a great deal and wildly successful. And it's great because all the good that it did, you know, those new market tax credits really helped out. They got a grant from the state and it just, this nonprofit helped low-income families get jobs, get shelter, you know, it just was a great deal all the way around, but it was the hardest one we've ever done. This episode of the Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Podcast Laundry, the podcast concierge service that I use to make sure that my listeners hear the best quality show. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up time to do more of what you'd love to do, like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones, go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347 8273. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. Thank you. 
definitely just hearing at high level, I can't even imagine the complexity. And when you have so many parties involved and so many lawyers of the different parties involved to come to some sort of agreement, I'm sure it was extremely challenging. Yeah, and I think it was the first time you could elect the ITC instead of the PTC because they had just been that just gotten approved. That was another little wrinkle in there. 2009. (laughs) Many moons ago. Definitely many moons ago. (laughs) That is pretty amazing. And there's a lot of interesting points that you made. It seems like you've adjusted to basically what the market is looking for and everything's constantly changing and you're diversifying your services. You mentioned this earlier, but have you thought about providing the whole capital stack? Like sponsor equity seems like the only thing that you're not providing at this point. Is that something that you've considered or... We have thought about it and we've done some one-stop shop from the standpoint of where we've been able to do the tax equity with the debt, you know, and that's worked out great. I mean, anytime you can do a one-time underwriting on something, really efficiencies are incredible. And we've explored that equity piece, but it just hasn't, you know, it's not consistent with our sources of capital right now, but that could change. Yeah, you never know. And I think that's huge, as you just mentioned, to bring the tax equity and the debt from the same party. It just simplifies so much of the transaction. And everything's about speed and deal execution. It's funny how you mentioned how tax equity investors will come third or fourth quarter. Like This is a way of... like It's a value add that you're able to differentiate from the market, I feel like. Because I don't know, you know many debt and tax equity providers or syndicators. It can be stressful when they come in in the last quarter looking for deals. <laughs> you got to really hustle to get them done. But it's incredible how many deals that we've been able to do for people where they call us and just we're like, hey, I got to get this done in four weeks, five weeks. Can you guys get this done for me? And it's usually not just one deal. It tends to be a portfolio of 10 deals or 20 deals. And you know we get right on it. And you know we've been able to execute for those people and they appreciate it. And we appreciate the fact that the people think that highly of us, that they trust what we say we're going to do and that we can get it done for them. Yeah, definitely. That's huge as well, Like that they have that trust, which goes back to the relationship. And if they don't think you're able to close within... I mean, the time period that you just said to me is like unreal. So that's pretty amazing. Yeah, our underwriting team, they do a great job. They get on stuff right away and just start hustling. Yeah, we're a little unique, I think, in that our underwriters actually underwrite the whole deal. They're not just kind of doing the modeling and then throwing the due diligence off to the attorneys. We try to do as much as we can. It's efficient from a cost perspective, but also, you know, our people really understand the deal. They know the deal and they got to support that deal when we go into credit committee and they do a great job of it. Yeah, it's worked out. Yeah, that's a huge differentiator. You mentioned actually the USDA REAP loan. Can you talk more about that? I think like that's a great structure for developers if their land qualifies. Can you talk about that more? Right. And that is the key thing, right? They got to be in that zip code that qualifies for the USDA REAP loans, but they're fully amortizing long-term debt. So, you know, I think it's up to $25 million and the guarantees used to kind of step down based on the size of the loan. But right now, USDA is offering the guarantee, the 80% guarantee of the loan. And then, you know, the rates are super competitive. It's a fixed rate. It's fully amortizing. So from a long-term ownership perspective, from a developer, if your plan is to hold that long-term, you know, right now you're getting sub 5% interest rates on a fully amortizing loan. That's very attractive. And, you know, you just got to kind of get through the process with USDA. 
they've been working really hard at streamlining things and they just came out with a new kind of way to process the stuff that's streamlined and they've been great partners. You know, there's just really good deals. So that's another good option, another tool for people, you know, and if you're able to get a 25 or 30 year amortization, because you could do a little bit of a merchant tail on the back end of a PPA for that, those are additional proceeds that you're able to get for your project. So that's helpful. Yeah, that's great for explaining. I mean, that's really like a great product if, you know, your land qualifies and the added sort of going merchant as well, as you mentioned, because of the amortization period. That's a great point. Yeah, the key is, does your land qualify? And it's really easy to determine. You know, there's a go on their website or our guys just will plug in the address and the zip code and we could usually tell within a minute or two if it qualifies or not. Yeah. I know this is probably a pretty standard question, but can you talk about like what are sort of the major things when you look at a solar project that makes it, you know, financeable just to give our audience, because we have a wide range of listeners who are listening to it, but it'd be great to get your perspective on it. You know, for me, having like a just to start off with, right? You never get a second chance to make a first impression. Starting off, having a good executive summary, a nice package that is informative. It doesn't have to be fancy looking, but just be able to give a quick summary of the project, you know, who the players are, what their experiences are. Talk about your off taker. You know, we like to see from a lender's perspective. Contracted sources of cash flow are always better than uncontracted sources of cash flow. I can count on it. It makes it a lot easier for me. So, you know, knowing all this stuff up front is typically our process is we'll have a conversation with someone to see where the deal is. And usually they come to us a little earlier in the process because they're just trying to get a sense for what the numbers look like as they're starting to pull in their EPC costs and all that stuff. So, you know, we'll take a look at it. We'll kind of agree on what the numbers look like. And if the numbers make sense, then we look at who are we dealing with. And that's where sometimes the relationship comes in. I mean, we've done people's very first deal and we've had some people come to us with some deals that needed some help getting to the starting line. And we're happy to help people out. You know, the thing for me is, you know, we have our way of doing things at Seminole. And it's proven to be effective. We know what we can do. We know how we do it. And, and we're able to execute. And when, you know, sometimes people come in and say, well, so-and-so does it this way, or, you know, you all should do it this way. That's where I'm kind of like, okay, well, this is how we do it. This is our program. I'm not saying anyone else's program is better or worse or anything. This is how we do it. But once you've kind of done a deal with us, then the second, third, fourth deals are always just smooth and easy. Or we try to keep the same underwriter with the same developers. So there's this cohesiveness. The underwriters follow the deals cradle to grave, you know, from the time they come in after we have the term sheet signed up all the way until the loan pays off. So it's very much relationship and we drive that home all the way through the process. But that if you is- got something that's fully baked and it's ready to go, you know, and it makes sense, you know, my partner says, let common sense and good judgment rule the day. You know, when you're looking at stuff, does this make sense, right? Someone's telling me they're going to build a megawatt deal on a 100-yard football field. I scratch <laughs> my head. Right? That doesn't make sense. But if you got six acres and one megawatt, this makes sense, right? So... Yeah, that's a great point about the package and really, you know, describing and the contracted. And I think that's huge too from a relationship perspective, having the same underwriter work with the same developer and investor because it builds that cohesiveness. And as well, it speeds up the process because they're both comfortable and understand what's needed. So. Right. And then, you know, when you come back the second time, the who is already done, basically. We already know who we're dealing with. So that part of the package, maybe update finances or whatever. So then they just have to focus on the what. 
So that's what speeds up the process. You know, our servicing team, they're employees of the month every day. Everybody, people come to our office, the first people they want to meet are the people <laughs> the servicing team because I can promise you're going to get the money. But when you submit the stuff and it's pretty easy to get the money, that makes a big deal and just solidifies people wanting to come back and work with us again and again. Yeah, definitely. That makes a lot of sense. It was interesting because you wrote an article that I read from October 2013, A Guide to Preparing a Successful Energy Project Finance Package, which is essentially what you just talked about in Solar Industry Magazine. Which You know, you can do a lot of fancy footwork on stuff and everything. I just like to say, keep it simple, right? This isn't uh, rocket science, what we do in our brain surgery here. It's just, you know, understand the deals, make sure you got everything buttoned down, present it in a nice package that's easy to understand and everything just goes quicker when you have that stuff and then people set up a nice data room where you know things are labeled you know ppa is the ppa not doc one so then you got to go through and figure out where's the ppa you know because that's time right if you want to get your deal done quickly and you're not organized then someone's got to organize it but if someone doesn't have to spend the time organizing it then it makes it flow that much quicker and we don't mind helping people organize it but it just takes a little more time and depends on what you want yeah, that's a great point. And this too, as well, like how the data rooms organize and all those different things, which you mentioned. And what trends are you seeing in solar or solar financing that we haven't talked about? Because I know you talked about a lot of different things. I see a lot of money coming into the space, that's for sure. <laughs> I went from catching an occasional elbow to getting punched in the face every time I turn around. It's it's a crowded (laughs) room right now. But, you know, this just happens, right? There's constantly a lot of talk on the national media and in newspapers and everywhere. You just hear renewable energy, climate, all this stuff, which is all great stuff. And people want to be a part of it. So naturally, people come into the space. That helps drive, you know, the cost of capital down, which is good for a lot of perspectives. But also sometimes people come in and do little shortcuts because you don't know what you don't know till you don't know it sometimes. So they may think that, oh, this is how I should do this. And then all of a sudden, you know, we haven't had any major issues. But if people start having issues, then that could be a negative. I mean, you look at renewable energy versus real estate right now. And from a credit risk profile, I think that you're probably a little better credit risk with renewables than with real estate. Everybody knows real estate and people are getting more and more comfortable with renewables. So as it becomes more mainstream, then more money is going to come in. You know, that's one of the things that I see a lot of is that money's coming in, that we're getting a lot of, you know, more people trying to get creative on how to get deals done. I'm seeing a lot of aggregation, let's call it, where people are just, you know, smaller companies are getting bought up by bigger companies. There's these funds or different groups of capital coming in and purchasing or try to form some kind of alliance with developers so they can see a consistent flow. So I'm seeing a lot of that too. You know, we talked about the tax credits that, you know, there's some positive things happening there, but you can't count your chickens before the eggs are hatched. So we got to just, you know, stay diligent on the tax credit stuff, you know, and, and stuff's still happening. The efficiencies in equipment, that's really helpful. Those are the things I'm seeing. I mean, those are pretty much the major points. That's key. I mean, there's a lot of money coming into the industry, as you mentioned, making cost of capital more competitive. I think the technology improvements that you talked about earlier, like bifacial, we're also seeing like single access trackers seem to be the norm now on utility scale projects to increase, obviously, the production. And then the efficiencies of the panels themselves 
outside of, you know, being bifacial and the cost obviously continuing to decline and other parts of the whole, you know, construction. and Yeah, the balance of system balance. stuff, the price keeps, you know, coming down on that. Yeah, it's moving in the right direction for sure. It's definitely moving in the right direction. <laughs> and it's crazy how quickly it's moving. And I was just going to ask you too, like, have you been active in storage? Obviously, everyone's talking about storage being the holy grail for intermittent power sources like solar and wind. Has that been something that you've been looking at? We have. We've done a couple solar plus storage for construction of them. We haven't done any long-term debt on them. Mm-hmm. And we haven't done any storage only, but we're looking at those right now. I mean, you look at the report came out the other day from Wood McKenzie, I think it was, that showed 3.5 gigawatts of storage last year. I mean, that's amazing. You know, it was funny going back a few years here at the conferences and, you know, you can see that, boy, there's something here. And you start talking to people and it's 2017, let's call it. They said, you know, around 2019, I think that's going to be the tipping point where the cost is going to be coming down enough where they start making sense on deals and the technologies are consistent. People are comfortable. And sure enough, man, 2019 was a big year for storage. And 2020, even with all the challenges, was a big year for storage. So that's an area that's just going to keep going nowhere but up. And, you know, as a lender, you know, we were getting our arms around it. We want to understand it more. There's some great companies out there that do analysis for you and help work through things for developers, get them to understand it. You know, there's a lot of maybe not so much even more the equipment as it is the software that goes with the equipment and making sure you're managing all that stuff properly. That's actually a great point, Chris, that no one really talks about is how key the software is in all the different sort of cash flows that you potentially can get from the storage and to make sure that it's maximizing it. I feel like we talk about technology, like we talk about lithium ion and some of these other technologies, but how important the software is, is a great point. Also, I don't know if you know much about like what's going on with the standalone storage IDC, or do you have any information? I know people think that there's a high probability of it potentially being... Uh... Well, was it the senator from West Virginia spoke at something not too long ago? He was an advocate for like storage and hydrogen to try to help you know, those technologies through tax incentives, it seems very, you know, favorable and very positive. And all the way around right now, things seem very favorable. And we have a nice kind of wind at our back, pushing us in the right direction, you know, but people still have to get out there and lobby and call and do all the things. SIA does a great job of getting in front of people, lobbying really hard. We got a lobby day next week, I think it is, or day or two. You know, it's hard with Zoom. I like to just go sit down across the table from people and Talk about what's going on, but you can have a big impact. I love to go to DC and lobby because, you know, when you get a chance to sit down with a congressperson or with a senator, and sometimes you disagree with their views or perspectives, sometimes you agree, but it's always just like a great discussion and it helps you learn like where their head is on things and what they're thinking and helps you kind of formulate, okay, well, is this reasonable request? And am I asking for the right things in the way that I'm asking for them? Is this going to help the whole industry or is this going to help one part of the industry? industry. And you got to weigh and measure all that stuff. SIA does a great job of holding on to the tiller and keeping the ship steering in the right direction. You know, yeah, I just think there's some really good things that are going to happen this year for our space. And I'm excited about it. For me, this is a nonpartisan issue. It doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat. It makes economic sense, right? Why? People always say, oh, the utilities don't want this. I mean, Tampa Electric is putting in hundreds of megawatts of solar in, in, you know, Sunshine State, Florida, right? Why are they doing that? 
One of the reasons is because the fuel's free. (laughs) So free is a lot cheaper than what they're paying for coal and natural gas and everything. So it's a balanced portfolio that works for them. You know, I heard a big utility executive talking a couple of years ago on CNBC, and they were asking him about, you know, coal and the natural gas. And he goes, we want a balanced portfolio. He goes, why wouldn't we want wind and solar and storage in our portfolio? That's the smart thing to do. And I agree with that. And I think that people realize that this should not be a partisan issue. This makes good business sense. The tax credits are an incentive. Yes, they are. But there's a lot of people that get the incentives. And if it's an efficient incentive, then why not? If it's helping people do stuff, you know, a lot of people get incentives. There's nothing wrong with it. And it should be something that should be treated fairly for everyone. And I think this one, you know, Wyden put forth is kind of trying to do that. He's trying to say, hey, everybody could share in this credit, whether you're natural gas or whether you're renewables or whatever. Who knows if it's going to go anywhere or not. But it's nice to see that people are thinking about it and wanting to try to move some of that forward. And I just encourage people, if you're listening to this and you have a chance to go lobby in D.C., you know, taking part in a great part of the process of our country and what it stands for and being able to go and express your views and talk to these people, educate them, let them know small businesses, you know, it's important. And uh, yeah, there's been a lot of things gotten done. It was small groups of people go into the Capitol, help get the last few extensions and different things that have really helped everybody in the industry. Yeah, that's a great point, Chris. I mean, everyone should take advantage of lobbying day that SIA you know, has. We'll have a link to it at SIA.org. And I think the key thing is that you mentioned it's not a bipartisan issue. It's really, you know, what's best for our country. And the key thing is jobs, right? It creates a lot of jobs downstream. And it's a way, you know, post the pandemic to rebuild our economy. So, you know, I hope that is something that people understand. And it's a great opportunity that we're still just in the beginning, which for people who've been in the industry for a while, it's surprising, you know, so. Dog years, man. I feel like I've been here for 10 years. I feel like I've been here for 100, you know, but uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's just great to see all the things that have happened over the years. And there's some guys that have been in it a lot longer than I have that just, you know, it's incredible the stuff that the hurdles they had to overcome in their early, early days of everything. And it's nice to see us continue in the right direction. Yeah, definitely. And it's an opportunity that's going to be going for a long time. It's still just in the early stage, which is amazing. It's amazing how many come young kids, but kids in college that are, you know, they'll reach out to me and say, I'm really interested in renewable energy. And what can you tell? And I just, it's exciting that there's this excitement around it. And, you know, for me, the way I look at it, the barriers of entry are low, right? If it's, yes. it's not like there's this huge established, it's been around for a million years and all this stuff. It's, hey, there's companies that want to hire talented people that want to learn, you know, get your resumes out there, talk to people and look for ways that you can get into the business and learn. You know, I tell a lot of these kids, you can't start off as a CEO. You got to start off, (laughs) you might have to start off as an intern or whatever, but take those opportunities to learn, be a sponge, absorb as much information as you can. And before you know it, you'll have the talent and what other people want to get to the next level and just build from there. Yeah, that's a great career advice for the younger population who's really interested in it. And it's also a career track that there's going to be a lot of jobs. And I don't think we have enough people for the amount of jobs that's going to be needed in the future. So our podcast is about solar and entrepreneurship. Can you talk about, you know, obviously Seminole is an entrepreneurial company. Obviously, you're principal, co-CEO. Can you tell me like what you learned from your 11 years at Seminole regarding entrepreneurship? 
been exciting. You know, I've always wanted to have my own company and work for very large companies, work for small companies. I like the small family atmosphere. You put a great team around you and just great things can happen. And it just all started with an idea I had. I was working at Credit Suisse and I was working in the low-income housing tax credit group over there. And guy called with a renewable energy deal and, you know, oh, we got an energy group. I'll call over there and find out. And they were like, you know, we only really started like a hundred million. hundred million, that's a huge deal. Wow. You know, like who does these like 10, $5 million loans? We don't really know. I haven't heard of anybody. So Got me thinking, well, somebody's got to be doing it. So I was calling around, trying to figure it out, just trying to help this guy out. Yes. And then lo and behold, I was like, it doesn't look like there's many people. <laughs> no one's doing this on a national basis, man. There might be an opportunity here. And then I used to work for my partner, Bob, back in his predecessor company he had. And he had just gotten the pension funds back and met with him. And I talked about it. And we saw a lot of similarities in the low, how the tax credits work with sure. income housing that we used to do. And he's like, nothing like a deal. Let's try to do one. And we got the first deal. And then from there, it just really, really took off. And it's been a great run. From an entrepreneur's perspective, it's important to work with people that you like, know who you're dealing with all the way around, right? With your investors, with the developers, with your team, make sure that people know that you respect them and that you all work hard together and you accomplish great things together. And that's been really great. But as a company, we try to take care of our employees, keep them happy. And they all do a really good job. And we're, you know, we're really proud of them. Bottom line is hard work, right? You got to get up every day, bust your butt, you know, work hard at it. People write, they'll treat you right, hopefully. And then things just start happening. And then, you know, you develop, I mean, someone had to do the first deal with someone, right? Definitely. A lot of people were hesitant. Well, you guys haven't done any deals, right? And I'm like, trust me. We will get this done. I'm telling you, I know we can do it. And then we did that first wind deal. Then we did a solar deal right after that. Then the next one, then the next one. Then people do one deal with you. Then they do three or four deals with you. And then it just you know, really took off. But it was important to get that first one and have those people trust you. And the thing that I'm really proud of now is how people always say, I'm calling Seminole because you reputation for getting stuff done. And the certainty of execution means a lot to me, even though I might pay a little bit more than somewhere else. I'm willing to pay that little bit more because I know you can get the stuff done. And a lot of the people that we work with have become friends. You know, the developers, just we consider them friends and we have fun doing what we do. You know, I'm blessed to be able to do something that I love doing, work with people that I love working with and work with developers that are fun. We have a good time together. My mantra has always been work hard, play hard. And, <laughs> you know, but the work has to come first, right? Yeah. That is huge. I mean, that's an amazing story to hear. And then if you think about it, 11 years later, you've now closed over $1 billion in construction and permanent financing. Yeah, $2 billion. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Oh, so it's $2 billion, actually. $2 billion, Yeah, one gigawatt, $2 billion. Yeah. Never, ever thought that that was... You just don't think that way when you're doing your first or second deal. You know, you just want to get the next deal. And construction lending stuff, too, because... They're short term, they're quick. They could be three months, it could be six months. You got to keep the money moving. You do a lot of volume. That's a great point that I didn't even think about that until you mentioned that. Uh, this has been an amazing interview, Chris. Like, if our audience wanted to learn more about Seminole and about you, like, what's the best way for them to do that? Probably easier to Google than Seminole Financial Services than it is to type in our <laughs> website because it's www.seminolefinancialservices.com. It's a lot of typing to do. So if you Google Seminole Financial Services and you go on there, you can see all the deals we've done. 
All our team members are on there. People can feel free to reach out to me, email or phone call. Always accessible. I I try to get back to people in 24 hours. Sometimes it's just impossible when you're going from call to call. But you know, I wouldn't have gotten anywhere in this industry without people helping me. And I remember all those guys in the early, early days that really spent a lot of time helping me. you know, they did that for me and I owe that back to people to help them if they want to get in the space to, you know, we're going to do what we can do to help people out. That's a great way to end the podcast. We also will have it on the notes of the podcast as well, your website and contact information. So if people want to reach out to you and that's great that you're paying it forward essentially. And, you know, more people should be like that. So we appreciate you. Well, thank you for having me. This has been great. Yeah, definitely. This has been an amazing interview. Thank you. Sure thing. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown. 